Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Because the rest of it, we don't get to control. We can't really control how a painting necessarily turns out. We can't control if somebody else is going to like it. We can't control if it's going to get in a show, if it's going to get accepted for a competition, if it's going to sell. I mean, there's so many things that we have, the end game we have no control over, but we do get to choose if we have a good time doing it. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. And the voice you just heard is this week's guest, Dreema Tolperi. In the episode, you'll learn the power of constraint, how to make your colors pop, and why maybe it's okay, you know, just to paint because you love it. This week also comes with some bonus conversation, and that can be found with the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 18. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. All right, here we go. Hi, Dreema. Thanks for being with us today on the podcast. How did you get into painting? Like a lot of people, I grew up being around art. I have a brother that's an artist. My father dabbled in it. I was exposed to it. I would be the best way. I really did not start painting, though, until I was about 29, getting ready to turn 30. How did you find oil specifically? I painted in watercolor for like 15 years and then transitioned to oils. And I know the pivotal moment for me, it didn't actually start showing up in my work, but there was a time, because I love watercolor and I still do that, but I painted very detailed watercolors and there was a time that I actually got to go see a major national museum of artwork that I had never seen that had Monet's and yeah, I walked into a room and when I left, I was never the same. It was like, I want that. I want that texture. I want that color, that li- all of those things and the looseness. And so it, it didn't show up in my work for a long time. But from that moment on, I was really kind of dissatisfied with what I was doing. And so oils offered that to me. So that had, that had a big impact on me shifting from that to oils. You just spoke about this a little bit, but what is it that you love about oil? Like what does oil allow you to do as an artist? I think for me, and I think that's why it's good to try different mediums. When I went into oils, I couldn't carry with it all the tricks I had figured out in watercolor. So when I got into oils, it was messy. It was paints were mushing together. And I was like, oh, you know, all this like sense of loss of control, you know. And at the same time, I couldn't get away from it because I loved it because I liked the fact that it, you know, when you mush those layers together, you get a stroke that looks a certain way that you couldn't even ever replicate it, that one movement in it. And the fact that it could be textural and built up and thin passages and you could work on it and manipulate that paint around in those edges where it stayed wet. And I loved that process of it. It's so interesting to think about because so often we think about watercolors not having control, but how interesting to move from one medium where you had learned it to then suddenly be starting again. Was that frustrating? Was that exciting? Was it overwhelming? It was, it, it was, it was all of those things because I am self-taught that when I started in my twenties to actually, I thought I'm, I really want to try this. My brother was a watercolor, so that's what I went into. I never tried any other medium, and I stayed with it for 15 years. And I always say, you know, there are many people, watercolors, who are the bold, splashy, you know, intuitive, and it's all this. I, I was never that. 
I was the white knuckle driver on the, you know, keeping everything. And and I love the paintings that I did then. They were part of my process. But when I went to see the Impressionist work, I was just, and I think we all evolve as we create, you know, and it was like, that's the next thing. I remember one of the very first outdoor workshops I took with Kevin McPherson literally had was my very first oil painting workshop. And he came by and I was, we were painting like this white antebellum home out on the street. I said, I can't get this light enough. I don't know. I'm trying to get the whiteness here, but I'm just not getting it. And he looked at me and he said, put some white out on your palette. <laughs> That's what it's like when you've only done watercolor and then you move into the oil. So <laughs> so for those of you who are listening and have only painted an oil in watercolor, you save the white of the paper. Like you, It's a transparent medium and you don't add white. Like you, you save the white of your paper in an oil. Like you have an opaque medium that you can use. Was there a point in your learning where you decided, no, this is important to me and I'm going to give it priority. I mean, may, that may not be the top priority, but I'm going to give it some sense of priority. Did you have a point that you sort of recognized that? I dabbled in my 20s and by dabbled, I mean, I drew and it was kind of like an itch that would not go away. I had taken art in high school and stuff, but I was always just a bit of like, I did other things. And so it was kind of like that thing that kept pecking me on the shoulder. And when I got ready to turn 30, I was, you know, because at 30, I felt old at 29, which seems so foolish now. But at that time, I felt really old. And I thought, I haven't gone to school for this. Have I waited too late to start? But I thought, another 10 years are going to come and go whether I do this or not. So why don't I try it and see what comes of it? And so probably the fact that I had a brother that was an artist that did it successfully made me think that from the beginning of just like doing it. So I started pretty quickly started selling my work and everything. I never really went into it with a big vision, but I was fascinated by it. And so it was like one of those things, it was always fun to just see what happened with it, to do this and see if I could get this this way and see what happened with that. And it was kind of one of those things that was just, there's a pleasure, as anybody's listening knows when you create, there's a pleasure that comes from doing it. And so that part of the process was really pleasurable, but I kept a lot of pressure on myself when you said the term serious artist, you know, that is, a, I, I will tell you now, I am not a serious artist. I do it for, you know, the joy of doing it. And it took me a, a lot of years to get there because I was hard on myself and I don't think it served me well to be that way. So what do you paint on and why? I primarily paint on Ampersand Museum quality panels uh, and I love the smooth surface. What paints do you use? Primarily Windsor Newton. I have some Rembrandts thrown in there. What characteristics do you want in your paints? Just that they kind of go on like butter. <laughs> oh, oil paint. <laughs> yeah, oil paint. <laughs> so do you use a limited palette or how many colors in general do you use? 14 colors plus white. So you have a really set palette that you use. I do. I do. And that's come about from teaching. And the truth is, is when you've got 14 colors, you can pretty well <laughs> mix anything that you would ever want. But I've taught for a lot of years. And so when you do that, you really, I got very coordinated on what I kept on the palette because it's disappointing to students if you do something and then they realize, oh, you know, you've used colors that we don't have or whatever that we can't replicate what you're getting. And so I've tried to be very standardized on that, but it actually serves me real well. I'm not, when I went to Paris a couple of years ago, I picked up some Charbon oils and I throw those in every once in a while. But for most part, those, I have 14 colors that pretty much are standards on the palette. Do you use any mediums or solvents? I use a medium in my initial layer because I work a la prima and it's refined linseed oil. And I use a solvent that's called Zested and it comes from the UK and it's pretty safe to use. And so I feel good about having that on my palette. And then what brushes do you use and, and what do you want from your brushes? I love brushes because of their expressive capability. 
They are like an extension from your heart to your arm to your fingertips coming out. And I love that. What I use most of the time is a Monarch Winsor Newton brush, size 14, flat. And I'm able to manipulate it so many different ways by using either the very tiny corner or the edge or whatever and, and really do what I want to with it. So it's kind of my go-to brush. I'll try other things, but I always come home to that. And I often do a painting with just one brush. What's the biggest challenge you see your students facing when it comes to materials? I think if students have old paints, if they leave things out too long, they don't understand what's happening because I always tell them that your oil paints start to oxidize from the minute you squeeze them out. So even the very next day when you go back in the studio, I always kind of do the tack test on mine with my palette knife to see because it can change. And those things can present frustrations. If you don't paint regularly, you haven't painted in a while, you don't understand what's happening and you think it's you and it's not. It's just the fact that the paints are getting a little older and they need to come off and you need to put fresh ones out. That's probably one thing that I see or putting too much colors out that you're not used to using can create frustration because you don't know how they're going to behave with each other. It's like putting a party together with people that don't know each other. <laughs> so could you give us a bird's eye view of your process? I work a la prima. It's my favorite way to work all at once, you know, kind of a one day painting situation. I tend to work small because I do work a la prima. I use pretty much a set set of colors, 14 colors in white. Two thirds of those colors are transparent in nature. And that is what I do my initial lay-in with. And so my initial lay-in is thinned paints with transparent color. And because I'm using the ampersand panel, which is a smooth service, you get a real bounce of light through them. So it's almost like stained glass. And so then at the second layer and the layers that kind of finish up the painting, I use everything on my palette, including white. And so the transparent colors can become opaque because you mix white with them. And then the, the opaque colors are already there. But I kind of move those back in there and leave pieces, if I can, of the original transparent layer peeking through in places. And it has a vibrancy to it. So it's kind of like the difference between a stained glass or a painted wall. One, the light is passing through and one, the wall is just a solid color. So you get that play and that all happens as a combination, transparent color, smooth surface of the ampersand panel. So yeah. Just for our viewers who don't know, what does a la prima mean? It means all at once, done all at once. So it's like you do it in one session. And so the session may last all day or into late into the night, but basically you're staying in the painting while everything is really wet and fluid and you can move it around and manipulate it. And that's one of the reasons I love working a la prima because I've done both obviously over the years, but when I work and let a layer dry and then come back into it the next few days, I'm working with what it already is. And if I decide to change something or I want to soften an edge or move something in, it, it's a different way of dealing with it. And I prefer the wet into wet or a la prima method. So it really is the paint changes if you it, let it dry. It does. It starts like if I do an oil painting today, when I go in tomorrow, it's not going to be dry, but it's going to be different. There'll be areas of it that are tacky, that are sinking in, that's changing. And every day that it sits on the easel, it's changing. And so for me, I like to be in it all when it's fresh, all happening at once. I hadn't thought about that from a learning to paint standpoint. You referenced this earlier that there's so many times where we think it's us as opposed to the materials we're using. And just every time you add a variable, you can run into that. So how great to be able to sort of have an expectation of the kind of paint you'll meet when you're painting all of Prima. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're exactly right. That's when you go in, you know what to expect because it's all fresh. And so, you know, because a lot of times I'll get into a painting and decide I had an idea, but this whole area, I want this to come back out and I want to go in this way. 
And then I can stand back and go, well, these edges are too crisp. They're screaming at me. You know, I've got to soften them. Everything, you can manipulate it till the very end of the piece, till you're finished with it. And I really like working that way. When I discovered that, it was like, this is me. And I think that's one of those things of trying. You've got to try different things on, different ways of working. They're like trying on clothes to see if they fit you because we're all individual. You know, what works for one person may frustrate someone else. So you kind of got to figure out what works for you. Do you think finding repeatable process is important for an artist? I do. And I would have never thought that probably 20 years ago, if you'd asked me or 15 years ago, I think doing it helps you to get comfortable with that and then explore venture further from there, kind of knowing the parameters of what's working and why it's working this way and what you can expect from it. Like you said, when you go in, the painting is still wet. You haven't had something that's kind of dry now. It's kind of sticky and you're like, oh, how am I going to handle this? It's kind of that known parameters that then it makes it, you can be really fluid within that. Do you use reference photos? I primarily work from photographs. When I travel, I take a lot. I think, you know, I paint the things that I love. And what I love are scenes from Italy and France and fresh flowers and cats. And of course, my cats sometimes are stationary, but most times not. And so I take a lot of photographs and I work from those. But I do work from life as well. I mean, when I'm in Italy and I have time to plant my easel and do it, I do it because I love being in the moment of doing it. Because for years I worked from photographs and then a long time I worked from life. And then I always tell people, don't be afraid of either. Because it's kind of like whatever you get used to, you almost get afraid, I do anyway, to go to the other thing. And it's like, it all works. What do you need from your reference photo? And then what don't you need? Most all the photos I work from are ones that I've taken. So some of the work's been done whenever I have photographed them. I've already been framing up a composition in my mind. I've seen something that caught my eye first. Then I've grabbed my camera and got a picture of it. And then that's what I have to work from. When I have the photograph, I use it, I guess, to capture the things that grab my heart at the moment. And then I want to try to hang on to that through the painting process so that it's not a copy of a photograph. It's actually my emotional response to what I was seeing at the time. And so that's what I'm focused on when I'm doing the painting from the reference. I've told students this, that like if you're working from a photograph, it's really helpful as you get more towards the end of it to remove the photograph and live with the painting and work with it then because you've already got the bone structure of it on there. And then when you're painting at that point, you're really involved with the painting and you're not so there's a temptation to want to try when you see something to try to make it match that photograph. But I always tell them, it's like the photograph's going to go away and what's left is your painting. And so you want to be involved with it and seeing how it feels because maybe it needs some color over here on the shoulder of this flower or maybe this needs to happen and it's not in the photograph, but you feel it when you look at the painting. Like having the reference photo be helpful, but not so helpful that it feels like you have to, like you've made it a promise and now you have to render it perfectly. If you can look at it as an inspiration, I think right. it helps the mindset of it. It's like, this is this is my inspiration. I'm seeing, you know, I've, I caught these fresh flowers on this day and they were wilted by the next, but for right now, like tulips change overnight. But I captured them and I, I want to paint them. So I want to retain that sense. I've, I've even, when I've got ready to work from a photograph before I got into it, sat down and in my mind's eye went back to what that place was, that sense of place when I was there, because I do travel and paint a lot from photo reference that I've taken when I travel. I really, in my mind, kind of try to revisit that space because all that, it's such a, it's such a woo-woo thing painting is anyway, you know? And so it's because it's all this marriage of our emotions, our thoughts of everything we've traveled and seen before we got to this place. Why did it speak to us? Maybe a hundred other people would have walked by and never been interested in painting it. But for you, it was that moment in time that you were like, you could feel chills. It's like, there's something I need to experience here. And the other thing about painting, and even when you're working from a photograph, is to remember the beautiful thing about it is it's another way to experience something that you've fallen in love with. How conscious are you 
of the thing that caught you? I think for me, it's more, it is just the emotion that I have about it. And that can be anything from, you know, people who paint the ocean, the emotions that you have about that to like my cat, because I've done a lot of paintings of my tuxedo cat, Eddie, to scenes in France and Italy, because I can go by like a doorway of a flower shop in Paris. And I may have walked by 20 doorways of flower shops in Paris, but this one I walked by and there's a particular one I have in my mind right now that I could see back through there. And there was an old ancient looking sink. And beside it was these huge flower buckets just crammed all in there with roses. And it was like, I mean, I can't really put a name on that. It's just that my whole heart just embraced the beauty of that of everything that's Paris. It's not just what you see in the thing. It's all of this. It's all you're surrounding you of your emotions about being in Paris and the place and the people and the history and the artists that have passed through there. And all that's almost wrapped into those moments when you see it. So it's the rush of those emotions. And when you're back home in your nest, in your painting, you pull out a photograph, let that be a touchstone for you so that it becomes more about your emotional response to what you were looking at and less about trying to rotely copy a photograph. That just seems so hard to do. One thing, and this is a real practical twist for thinking about photographs. The tricky thing about photography is when you take a picture with an auto camera, which most of us have on our phone, it gives you everything in sharp focus from side to side, top to bottom. Everything's in sharp focus. And that right there sets you up for the challenge because it's like everything is saying, look at me. And if you, our listeners can do this right now. If if you think about how the human eye, how you see and how I see Wherever somebody's listening to this right now, just take your eyes and focus on something around you. It's on your desk, your coffee cup, something on the wall. Focus on it and then look how everything else around it falls into soft focus. That's how the natural eye sees. So when you think about taking a painting that's got all this information and jumble and everything, think about what out of that scene that really grabbed at you and let that be what you talk about, what you give information to in detail and complementary color and all the things that we do to draw our eye to that because that's the story you're feeling that you're wanting to convey to your viewer do that and let the other things kind of become into that soft focus and tone down quality just like your human eye does do you go in with a color plan or when do you make those decisions about color and what does that decision making look like those decisions are made when i see a thing and i either photograph it or i'm able to sit up my easel and paint it's made at that moment and i am a bit of a color addict I don't know that there's a cure for it, but that, that is the driving thing. And then when I get to that place, then I'm looking for ways to infuse color into what I'm doing. So even if I'm painting blue shuttered windows in a house in Provence and there's flowers cascading out of it, I also take into note the grays in the building on the side need to be there because they're what make the colors pop. But I also sneak in some, you know, it'll be a purplish gray or it'll be a greenish gray. It's never just battleship gray. It's going to have an infusion, a little bit of color into it. So I look for places to play with color because color itself is so playful. And so why not? (laughs) So thinking about color, what are the biggest challenges you see with your students when it comes to color? Of course, people that I see love color too. You know, someone I'm teaching or if they follow my work online, they've bought a painting, they love color too. But if they're trying to paint, the biggest thing that I see come up, two things, is one is painting loose and the other one is getting muddy color and the frustration that happens with that. Because if you're wanting a really pure pop of color and it's dulled down, there's the disappointment factor on that. So that's probably the two biggest things that I see come up with students. In oil painting, what are the different ways that someone does get mud? It actually starts on your palette and goes all the way to when you're painting on your painting. So I won't 
necessarily go through every step of that, but it is, for me, it's keeping colors clean. And I always kind of want to know if it's something's in a mix, I want to know that it's there. I don't want it to be an accident because my red was too close to my green on my palette. And then I was mixing something over here and my brush got in the corner of that, that it starts there. <laughs> Oils are sneaky because they can slide into places they're not supposed to be hanging out. But when it gets onto the surface of the painting, because oils are wet and you're manipulating and going back in, it's very easy for things to get commingled that you didn't intend to happen. And obviously, if they're complements, you're going to get a dulled down mud pretty quickly. So it's about almost like a palette strategy and then a painting strategy. Yeah, there's a lot of different places that it can get contaminated. But probably the biggest thing that happens is when you're on the surface of your painting, what I encourage you to do is to be decisive about the strokes you're making. Like go in with a plan. Don't go in meandering. Go in consciously like this is, I'm going to load my brush with this. I'm going to go in here. I'm going to lay the edge of the brush right here. I'm going to pull it down and make this stroke just this way. Doesn't mean you get it right every time, but try as much as you can to be thoughtful about the strokes you place on there. What I have often seen happen is people lay a stroke down and before they've even had time for their eyes to see their stroke to see if it works, they've already licked it. They've taken their brush back up the other way and pulled it back down. I always tell people my cat's a big proponent of licking, but I do not recommend it. <laughs> and licking on the painting is just kind of going back and forth. You're okay if you're in an area that you've just, like if say you're painting a red or pink rose and you only have those colors down and you're going back and forth, it's okay because when you're kind of licking it and pushing the paint back and forth, it loses the voice of the stroke a little bit, but that's okay. You may want a smoother painting. But what happens if that pink petal is parked right next to a green leaf and you're going back and forth and you've now got a little bit of that wet green leaf into your pink and you've pulled it back and forth, the more that you lick with the brush going back and forth, the more it's going to stir in that green and it starts to dull down that color. Depending on how much of that color that you've grabbed into it is how much of a dull effect you're going to have on your paintings. So being more thoughtful about a stroke of what color you want it to be, the shape you want it to be, and laying it on that way, it gives you a fighting chance to not get a muddy color because you're not stirring everything. Because if you get all those paints on there and then you're just kind of going back and forth, it's like stirring up a big batch of stuff. There's also such an instinct that if you lace down something incorrectly of like, oh no, I want to fix it. And then it's such a terrible cycle of like, no, fixing it makes it worse. And then you want to fix it, but like fixing it makes it worse. Well, and the thing is, is like when you're doing, when you lay that stroke down, give yourself a hot second to look at it and go, does it work? Maybe part of it works. Maybe part of this stroke that you made of the side of this woman's dress works, but when it gets down here, it's like it's not working. So maybe you wipe your brush and you go back in and soften that one edge rather than readdressing the whole stroke. But just being conscious, kind of slowing down, and it sounds crazy because I paint loose. And a lot of times when people look at my paintings, they think I'm just fast, but a lot of it is very thoughtful. It's a deliberate like looking at the value that I want, the shape of the stroke, and then making that. And if it doesn't work, you can scrape it back off. It's not a big deal. You can scrape it right back down to the bare bones. But being thoughtful about it, because a lot of times if you make a stroke and it doesn't work and you want to go back in and fix it, have a plan <laughs> for what you're going to do. Because I've done it. I mean, the reason I can talk about this is because I've done it. It's like, oh, let's, let's get rid of that quickly as we can. <laughs> But what you want to do is go, okay, that's not working. Why is it not working? Does it need to go darker? Is the color wrong? Is it too red or too green or whatever color you're in? Is it just drawing too much attention to itself? Maybe it's just so bold that it needs to just be softened on the edges so that it'll kind of push back and become part of its surroundings. Kind of have that conversation with yourself about what's happening with it. Then when you go in, then you kind of know, oh, it needs to be darker. That's what happened. And you go in and do it and it's done, but you're not doing the just mindlessly kind of 
pawing at the paint where then, because the more you work with those wet paints, the greater the odds are you're going to get it dulled down. And this might be a tricky question, but about how many layers of paint do you have in a painting? I start out with a transparent layer, so that covers the whole board in transparency. After that, it's kind of game on of whatever it needs. Some areas I don't go back in. I try to leave a little bit of the transparency peeking through. So some areas may have just a stroke over top of that, and some may have two or three strokes over layered on top. So it varies with the painting, and it varies with the subject a lot of times, and it varies if I'm struggling. You know, if I'm struggling, there may be more paint on it, so... That's the thing with painting. It's never a guarantee when you do a new painting. It's always like, okay, game on. Here we are again with a white, white board to start. What is, what are we going to do with this? You know. So, how does someone mix vibrant colors? Starting with a good palette for me is is part of it. The choice of colors, the range that you have on your palette, and then I know there's rule of thumbs that if you mix more than like three colors, you're going to get it starts trailing off and all that. I'm a colorist who loves color. I'm not someone who understands the chemistry of that. Trust your eyes. You know, I look at a color and when I'm mixing it, I think you try to arrive there in the shortest distance possible with what will get you there so that you don't pull out, you know, five colors to try to arrive at this one and keep nudging it around. But I think starting with a palette of colors that you like that are vivid and the transparent colors are really good for that because when you add I love them because if you use them by themselves, they're one way. When you add white, they just blossom because they haven't had anything added to them. So they're just like these pure, like a permanent rose just becomes this gorgeous pink. And so you have a lot of movement within that to mix colors that are really, really gorgeous. How do you set up your palette so that you keep everything as clean as possible? I work on a glass palette, which is helpful to me because it's easy, quick, clean with like a three-inch window scraper. I go as big as I can if I've got a table at the house and I'm working on get a piece of glass cut for that gives me plenty of room to put it out. But you you don't necessarily need that much. For me, having a glass palette and a three-inch window scraper has got the razor blade in it is the best thing that ever happened because if my palette starts getting too full with mixed colors, I just scrape and it's literally a 10-second get it off and start mixing again. The other thing I do, and I, I don't know that this necessarily leads to clean colors, but as a younger painter, I did not realize how valuable this is and it's so simple Whatever palette you have, whatever colors you're using, set them up the same way every time. And it's it's like having middle C on the keyboard. If they moved middle C, where would pianist be? If every time they went in, middle C was parked somewhere different. It's one of those things that simplifies your painting experience. It's less stressful. And if you do add new colors, then you can add them in a certain area and go, oh, these are the new colors that I added, and you know where they are. But with your tried and true, if you put them out in the same order every time, on your palette, then you don't have to think. Because a lot of the colors, when they're squeezed out, like a purple dioxin I have on my palette, or Caribbean blue look almost black until you start to add something to them. And I don't have to pause. I know when I go to the corner pocket, my purple is there. I don't have to stop and think about which color is that. So it's a real simple thing, but if you're someone that hasn't been painting very long, you may not have come across that piece of information. It's so helpful. Do you have them warm to cool? I actually don't. I don't even remember now how I arrived at setting up my palette. I have CAD colors, which I love. And so I have them all grouped together. And then I have a color called Ice Blue, which I live and die by. It's a wonderful color by Richeson. And it's kind of a neutral gray, but it's really a wonderful color. So I have the opaques grouped together. And they're a small group. There's only like, I think, four of my opaques and then my white. And then the rest of them are my transparent colors. So they kind of go from the purples to the blues to the greens and the reds and then down to the warm. So I kind of have them loosely like that. But because I've separated them by the fact whether they're transparent or opaque, they're kind of out of order probably compared to some palettes. If your goal is vibrant color, how much do you use paints straight from the tube? And then how much do you mix paints? 
And this is an interesting question because I've had this come up before when I was teaching where somebody said someone told them to never use something squeezed straight from the tube and somebody else said you should always, you know, and I'm like, I'm an outlier. I'm like, if I squeeze it out of the tube and it's the color I want, why mess with it? I, I just don't see the point in that. If I squeeze it out and, and it's not the color I want, I'll make the adjustments that I want to. But that's, to me, it's kind of like I'm looking for color for color's sake. And so if it meets that criteria and it's what I'm looking for, then... I use it that way. I don't see the point in extra, extra labor and extra mixing it, you know? So yeah, most of what I have, I would say on my paintings actually do have some mixture in them because using the transparents, the transparents by their very nature are dark. So they have to have at least a white or a cad yellow or something mixed into them to start bringing the value of them up. It sounds like that first layer really is transparent, but then after that, you don't use the transparents as transparent use, you would add right. white. Right. I use everything and I use it kind of, I'm, again, I'm looking for uh, value and color. So it depends on what the painting's calling for as to how, what I decide to use and use how I use it on the painting in the extra layers. Yeah, actually, let's talk about that. Because when you're looking at a reference photo, what are the questions you're asking yourself in terms of color and value? What's sort of the analysis you're doing? This is not probably maybe a necessarily direct answer to it because it's part of the process I paint a lot of the subjects that I love, and so they tend to be similar. So a lot of that, I don't do it now because I feel like if I'm painting some of the, the buildings in Provence or Tuscany, I kind of already know how I'm going to handle that look of that building. The good thing about getting to paint subjects that you love a lot is it gives you other areas to kind of expand and try something different in. But it's that some of those are just kind of core things that I know now that if you were to give me something that like to go paint the Grand Canyon that I've never painted, I would really be back to square one of really doing a lot of it strong assessment on of like, what is that? How am I going to capture that on my canvas? What What's the foundational colors I'm going to use? And then what would I use next? And how am I going to tell that story of the long evening shadows and they're looking purple? What am I going to do with that? So those are the questions I would ask on a new subject, but on something that I've painted, which I tend to paint a lot of the things I love. And so they tend to be things I'm familiar with. Also, that's very hopeful that at some point we won't have to think about all the things at all the times. Well, I would say this. Years ago, Kelly, when I started painting, I had it in my head. And it's funny the things that we get in our head that we don't, we don't question. No one else is there to check in to go, why are you thinking that? But I had this kind of thing that I had never named that I felt like every time I went into my studio that if I had painted a dog the last time, I needed to paint a barn. And if I had painted a barn, I'd already done that. I needed to paint a cat. If I'd painted a cat, then I needed to paint. I always felt like it needed to, I needed to challenge myself that it needed to be something new, that I was like cheating if I went in and was painting similar subjects. And then I ran into Monet's work and there was like a lot of water lily paintings, <laughs> a few haystack paintings. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, so you can actually paint something you like over and over. And the beautiful thing about that, and I think that's what you see in like Monet's work, is he didn't have to go in and think, how am I going to paint a water lily and make it lay flat on the water? I don't know if you've ever tried to paint a water lily in water, but it's I've done them before where they look like they're all standing up, saying hallelujah. It's like, lay down, lay down. You're going back, but you're still standing up. So, you know, he got past that, obviously, probably fairly quickly. But then he's doing all the atmospheric stuff. What does it look like at different times of day and different seasons? That's what he went in for. So he wasn't trying, he didn't have to go in with this thing of like, now I've got to figure out how to paint a lily laying on the water or how, how to get it, capture a willow tree where it looks like a willow tree. He knew how to do that, which allowed him to explore deeper into the mysteries of all those things that surround us in nature, which is beautiful. So it's kind of a permission-based thing. If you have things that you love, if you have someone that loves the ocean, you love to paint it, paint the heck out of it. 
because every time you paint, you're going to be carrying in the knowledge that you have building on it, and you're going to see something else that, that you're drawn to that you pull into the piece. Four vibrant paintings. So there's the, how you handle the color on the palette. There's the being thoughtful about how you lay the paint down. And then there's also what is happening in the painting itself, like what colors you use where. How do you use things like warm and cool in your painting or compliments in your paintings? I really am an intuitive painter. I ask my painting questions. I've been known to do that. Like, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want from me? No. I stand in front of it though sometimes and I realize it needs something and I'm like, what do you need? Because it's like a conversation that happens between you and this thing because it's now becoming its own thing. And oftentimes that discourse is there. And I use subtle compliments sometimes to pop things to help colors to stand out a little bit more. And, and those really work really nicely. Like if you've got a red rose up against a neutral building, if you make that neutral lean a little bit towards a green neutral, a greenish gray, it makes those roses pop a little bit more. The casual viewer wouldn't walk up and go, oh, they've got green in the building. That's why that's doing that. But it creates that little bit of a spark. And you do need the neutrals. I'm very conscious in painting that accents of color really help draw the eye and create. That's why they stand out. And I've used this analogy before, like the things that I teach are things that I have familiarity with because I've done them. <laughs> but it's like, I've had a painting before where I'm like, you know, you put this big piece of fuchsia color up here and it looks amazing. And you're like, oh God, I love that. It's just, oh, so I'm going to put that over here and over here and over here. And now you have it all over the painting. And now the first passage that you did doesn't have that voice that it had. And it's kind of like, if you put a scarf on to accessorize, it makes the outfit. But if you also add one to your head, both elbows, tie a couple on your end, your knees, the impact is lost. And it can, <laughs> it can happen with using color like that. So as much as I love color, I'm very aware of the support that grays, the neutral passages of your painting. They are what shine the spotlight and allow the colors to have center stage. And so I'm mindful of that in the painting of, of when it goes. And so that really is kind of the intuitive process. Like I decide this is going to be here and sometimes I'll go ahead and carry it over here because it needs a little bit more, but then I stop because I'm like, I've been down this road before where I kept adding because I fell in love with that and like it diffuses it, it dilutes it, it waters it down to where it doesn't have that oomph that we're looking for. How do you approach your focal point or I guess what term do you use for I, sort of and that's the right term. And I, sweet spot, you know, I, I loosely use that. Again, I'm a bit of an outlier. I paint what I like. I lay it on the canvas the way that it feels good to me. It may not always align with rules. There may not always be a real defined center of interest. But I paint the painting because I have joy in doing it. And I work it until it feels right to me. And so it's kind of like I'm aware of the rules, but I try not to be bound by them and letting that painting have its own voice so playful to paint. It's so joyful that we get to push pigments around and just see what's going to happen on a white surface. I mean, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. And I guess I'm not rigid in my thinking on that. And so when I'm doing a painting, I mean, I am conscious that I want it to have flow. I want people to kind of know what I was excited to share with them. And I do that by use of compliments, by crisp edges, by strong value shifts. All those things help guide the eye to the area that I want people to kind of pay more attention to. And the areas that are supportive, they're like the supporting characters that need to be there. The colors are more grayed down, more subdued. The edges are softer. The values are closer. There's not as much to say, hey, look at me. How much permission did you have to give yourself 
to be able to paint what you actually wanted to paint in the way you wanted to paint it. I had a lot of beliefs about what I thought a real artist was, and I was not conscious of them. And I was really hard on myself. In my 30s and 40s, I had a lot of ideas floating around that said a real artist would be in their studio painting every day. A real artist would not work from photographs. A real artist would, I mean, you name it, and I had it as a rooted in belief that a serious artist, a real artist did not do that stuff. And so the problem with that is those beliefs are debilitating. They're crippling. They they will snuff your gift out almost if you listen to them because they stand in judgment on you on every move, every thought, every idea you have. It's like, this is not serious. This is not real. I remember, jump forward here a lot when I went online in 2009, 2010, started blogging and painting. I was just kind of dipping my toe out there. I was painting what I liked to do. I was still kind of finding my way. And I did uh, a series of paintings of my cat with a brass mouse. And I, I had a, a fellow online that had contacted me. He was doing some kind of thing with a, the Steve Worthington. And he had these little brass mice that he had sculpted. And he said, if I send one to you, will you paint it with the cat? And so I did. And I had so much, the very first one I did literally Kelly, when I walked out of my studio and came back in the next morning, I giggled when I saw it on my easel. It made my heart light. It made me happy. And at the same time, I was terrified to post it online because every story of being a serious artist, a real artist, you know, I had done a gallery show the year before, put a little self-published book out with it, had 25 paintings in it that were all, and they were gorgeous. But I had this demarcation line of that's what the serious real artist does. And I've got people who are buying my art and they see me as that. And now I'm over here painting my cat with a mouse and I made the mouse look real. So I wound up doing, I don't know, 30 paintings of Eddie with a mouse. But it struck terror in my heart to actually publish that because I thought I could see my serious art career, whatever it was, going down the toilet real quickly with that. Oh, she's just she's just hobbying now. She's just. You know, and the truth is, nothing could be further from the truth. Art is here in a way to serve us, to bring us joy with what we do. And that needs to be the first thing that we're reaching for in our art is, did we have joy? Do we have a good time doing it? And I can say now, after the last 10 years of painting, that truly, sometimes they wander off the path. They kind of go a different direction. And I'm not much one to try to revive it. It felt like it's gone in the ditch too far. A lot of times I'll just drop it in the garbage. And I literally used to, when that happened and a painting didn't turn out, I would beat myself up for days and feel bad about what I had done and feel like you shouldn't have started. You don't have the talent, whatever the it was that got passed out. You didn't get it. What were you thinking? And then now when I paint, it's like, man, I had a good time. I don't really have an end result to show for it, but I had so much joy in the doing. It was such a pleasure to get to stand here and have this experience of doing this. And it shifts when you change your focus from a result to the actually the doing of it is where the joy arrives. Because the rest of it, we don't get to control. We can't really control how a painting necessarily turns out. We can't control if somebody else is going to like it. We can't control if it's going to get in a show, if it's going to get accepted for a competition, if it's going to sell. I mean, there's so many things that we have, the end game we have no control over. But we do get to choose if we have a good time doing it. It's strange to me sometimes and this can happen for a long time, like it's not just beginners, how many reasons and how much proof we are always looking for to prove that we shouldn't be painting, even though everything in us wants to be painting. And why is that? Like, where does that come from? 
I don't know, but it's real. And it's the things a lot of times that really almost get alluded to, but they're not really drug out of the dark into the light. Because when you shine the light on them, it goes away because it's not real. I mean, we're all here. We're all creative and we all have something in us. And it's all a unique voice. Somewhere along the line, I figured it out. But I have a lot of times people ask me, say, you know, how do I get my signature style? And I want a signature style. I want a, a look to my paintings. And is it possible? And I remember in my early 40s thinking, if I can't bring something new to the plate, if I'm just going to be an also ran, if my work is going to look like everybody else's, then why do it? I actually had, I wrote that in my journal. But the truth is, is it's in us to create. And the, our signature look and what is in us don't look any further than your own handwriting. Your handwriting will hold up in a court of law as to whether it's your handwriting or not. It's so uniquely you. It's your imprint. And that's the promise that you have when you create and you paint, that your gift is singularly unique to you, for you, and it matters that you do it, that you show up and create these things. And let the rest take its place where it will. But don't let it be robbed from you because that's your birthright. And yet when we're starting out, so often we... Even when we want to have a unique style, we understand that that's what we're working toward. Having anything that looks different than what is out there feels terrible. Oh, 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 I know. Well, this thing is, and I've said this before, this is what happens is we want so much to have our own voice. And the minute that we put something down different, we're like, oh, dear Lord, we can't. We can't, we can't do this, you know. And it is that thing, what it is, Kelly, when we do something that is really uniquely us, it's going to look different than what someone else is doing. So when we do that, it's when we feel our most naked and vulnerable because we really have kind of peeled back the layers of our heart and said, this is me. I'm showing up and this is what it looks like. This is me. Because there's a safety. If I can paint and my paintings can look like would that they could Richard Schmidt's. Or they look like, you know, a Claude Monet or a Van Gogh. If I can paint and make my stuff look just like them, there is a safety in that. Because if someone, like if I post that on social media and someone comes along and goes, well, look at that painting she did of those water lilies. That's not very good. And I can think to myself, well, what do you know? Because they look just like Monet's. And I've had many, many people tell me they look just like a Monet. There's a security in that. But if I paint the water lily and it's Dreamer's water lily, and it's the way I see it, and it's my soul mark on that painting. And I put it out there and someone comes along and says, well, look at that. She's not very good. It's really hard to stand in that because we have really shown ourselves. And that's why it really takes courage. Artists everywhere need to give themselves huge pats on the back because it takes so much courage to make your mark, to put it on the canvas. And then if you take it one step further and actually share it and let someone see it, it's bravery because it really is the sharing of your insides out it's how you see the world. It's how you're walking. And it's even, we're hard on ourselves, but where we are now is not necessarily what our work will look like two years from now, four years, because we evolve as people. And so there's a sacredness in that. And it is to honor everything that we do and to give thanks for it, rather than being harsh on it or judging it is to actually be grateful for it because it showed up. We've allowed it to be the vessel for that to show up and there will be more to come. And so be the first to love what you do rather than waiting for validation, be the first to love it and say, I love this. Look at that brush stroke I did there. I don't know about the rest of it, but look how the color looks through here. There's also something that I don't know why we do this. Like it's so vulnerable to be the person who's like, I loved that. There's safety in saying, um, I didn't love that. It's such a weird type of vulnerability to say, I did this painting and I love it. 
you're exactly right. It's such an odd thing because there's almost a sense of pride in doing a painting and putting it out there and saying, well, you know, I didn't. It, it's funny to me because I've always said artists are the hardest to give compliments to. You know, you go to the show and it's like, I love that painting. They're like, oh, that, well, I, you know, I didn't, I was working on that and I wasn't quite, you know, that I don't know about that cat's eye. I don't really know. You know, it's like, it's beautiful. Take the compliment and say, thank you. You know, it's artists. We're hard, so hard on ourselves. I don't know where that comes from, but hopefully with today's conversation, it'll start to shake the edges of that loose a little bit because it doesn't serve us. I think I used to even think if I was really hard on myself, that that would make me be a better painter, that I was like the teacher at school that's smacking your hands with a ruler. It's like, if I'm hard enough on myself, that's going to make me, and it doesn't, it makes you fearful. It makes you constrained. I think it hampers the flow of your gift and love what you do. Love every mark you make. It leads to making more marks. Makes you, it woos you back in, makes you want to show up. Because if you have a teacher that loves you, that supports you, you always want to show up for them, don't you? I mean, when you were in school and stuff, if you had a teacher that was like, oh, Kelly, you just did such a good job. You always do a good job on the bulletin board or whatever, you know. It's like you glow in that and it makes you try harder. It doesn't make you just lay down and become a near-do-well. But sometimes as artists, we were like that on our, I was. I can't speak for everybody, but I know myself, I've been really hard in the past where I felt like that that somehow was going to cause me to become a better artist. And I don't think that's the case. Painting is the first time many of us say, this thing I love, that I love, is important for me. And that's enough. Do you think there is this piece that we have to overcome to sort of give ourselves permission to hold space for something that is important to us and maybe only to us? I think definitely so. I think it comes with guilt a lot of times because you're taking time for something and you can't, you know, oftentimes with painting, if you're someone who's showing and selling and everything, then there's a bottom line that maybe seems that you can justify it. But for most people, that's not the case. I mean, I've painted most of my life not having any income from it or it being very sparse and very far between. And I, I continued to paint. And there is a sense of guilt of like that you're taking time and money to do something that is seems frivolous almost. And we all know when you pull it back and read, you understand that creativity, how good it is for everybody. If you're feeling stressed, if you take the time to just sit and, and do just a little pencil sketch or something, you can feel your whole body relaxing. It's here for a reason in our life. But I think you're right. I think the really struggle with it seems almost selfish to be able to say, I need this Saturday morning to take some time to go create. Seems too self-serving. But we know that when we take care of ourselves, that we're better for everyone else around us. And part of that gift, when you feel that, I'm happier when I'm creating. And I think most people that create understand that whether when they go create something, they go make something. I had a girl in my workshop one time that we got so tickled. She said, I have days I've just got to go glue something. I just got to glue something. <laughs> we started calling her glue girl because she was just so, it was so genuine, but it was so true because she was like, I just, I got to do that. And you kind of know you're better for having done it. But I think that people do struggle with the sense of not being able to validate it in, in terms of monetary and the thing is, is with creating, and I think it's, I want to say it here because I think it really matters. I think, again, it's one of those things where we can become attached to an outcome of having a finished product. And when you make it about the product, it becomes a different thing. If you stay in the process of doing it, that's where what feeds your soul is kind of happening. 
And that's hard to articulate sometimes to our friends and family of why we need to do it. It's funny because people are well-intended. A lot of times the minute that you even start creating something, they're like, oh, you should set up at the local festival. They're doing whatever. And it turns into something else. And that's okay. But you want to keep that part for yourself that really brings that whatever it is. I mean, it's like magic that's ushered in whenever we get to create something. You can learn more about Dreama Told Perry, including her workshops, at her website, dreamatoldperry.com, or on Instagram and Facebook. We'll have links to everything in the show notes. Dreama, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Kelly. This has actually been a lot of fun. You've asked me some questions that made me think hard, so thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash episode 18 for show notes and for the bonus conversation with Perry. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show and want to help other artists find it, review it wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, see you next time. Happy painting.